excited to go through the book of Hebrews. Uh, you know, it's crazy that it's almost the end of July, and to think that in April um, our body was fasting for seven days, and in that period we endeavored to read fifteen chapters. Uh, a session, three sessions a day for seven days to go from Genesis through the book of Ruth. And by the grace of God, he just helped us to do that and to just just hear from him. Uh, a quote that's been on my heart all week since I read a tweet uh, from J.C. Um, R.C. Sproul <laughs> or J.C. Rowell, whatever. <laughs> Uh, R.C. Sproul was that, let him who desires to hear God speak, read the Holy Scriptures. And uh, I just know that we heard the Lord speaking to us in that week of reading through the Pentateuch and then some as we went through the book of Ruth. And um, tonight we're going to uh, hear the Lord speak through the book of Hebrews. And But we'll be reminded of a lot of what we read during that fasting period. Uh, we're going to read some things, and it'll come, it'll come back to you. You'll have some remembrance of all that we read. And for those of you that have read um, the Old Testament in the past, you're, you'll be familiar of what you, what, much of what is spoken tonight as we're in Hebrews chapter 3. The journey from Egypt up to Canaan that took about 40 years is a picture, it's an illustration of the Christian pilgrimage. The Christian pilgrimage, moving towards the kingdom, moving towards the promised land. It's a reminder to us, as we'll read later on in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, it's a reminder to us of the large number of people who left captivity in Egypt and made their way towards the promised land, but fell short of that goal. Uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of graves uh, in the wilderness uh, around the land of Canaan, mark a group of people who, uh, who neglected the word of God. It marks a group of people who hardened their heart to the word of God and allowed a cold heart to come in. In one chapter, next week, chapter 4, verse 1, we read a, a warning, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. What a warning. It's a warning that, uh, that we'll get into tonight, uh, that any of us would come short of the rest that's been made available to us. Some that would read the book of Hebrews got a necessary and familiar Warning, a warning that we see in chapter 3, verse 14 of our text tonight. A warning that says, guys, hold firmly to the end. Hold firmly to the end. We want to remember the context of what we're reading in the book of Hebrews. A group of Hebrew believers received a letter at a time in their life when they were being persecuted for faith in Jesus Christ. And as that persecution arose and it got hot and they began to be ostracized from their community and kicked out of their homes and uninvited to family reunions and, uh, you know, dropped out of the will and eventually even some being put to death and losing, uh, losing lands and having those things confiscated, uh, people began to think, you know, it might be easier to just 
leave Jesus. It might be easier to just get, you know, this, this preacher from Galilee, he's just causing a lot of problems in my life. It might be easier to just go back to the comfortable system of Judaism that I grew up with. You know, the, all that I learned and all that I knew and all that my family celebrated and everything that I'd read and memorized, man, there's some warmth there. And, and I never was hurt like this before in that. So people began to go back and fall away. And so the author of the book of Hebrews just writes just a plea and urging them, don't drift away, don't go back. Don't fall short of the promised land is what we get in these next two chapters. You messianic Jews, there's this danger of drifting away from Jesus. And so the author writes about how much better Jesus is than anything you could ever get out of religion. Anything that you could get out of the shadow is not as good and wonderful of what you could get out of the substance So don't go back to the shadow when the substance, which is Christ, is right here and he's alive and he knows you and wants you and has done so much for you and paid for so much for you to, to, to have as a blessing in your life. And so the author in chapter one begins to tell these Hebrew believers, hey, Jesus is better than the prophets in his sphere, in his office, in his ministry, In his mode of communication, he's better. In chapter one, you remember that Jesus is better than the angels that the Jews esteemed so highly because he's God and he created the angels. Last week in chapter two, we saw that Jesus is better than the angels, not only because he's God and he created the angels and the angels worship him and minister for him, but because he became a man. And in his humanity, he experienced what it's like to be tempted and to suffer and to be hungry and to bleed and to be forsaken and to die. And we read later on in the chapter of chapter two that he became and is our sympathetic high priest, able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our trials and in our temptations. And so here in chapter three, we move another level in just this Jesus is better saga. And that Jesus is better than someone else the Jews really loved. He's better than Moses. He's better than Moses in his person. He's better than Moses in his work. The author, the author A.W. Pink, wrote this, the contents of this Section Hebrews 3 may be stated briefly thus, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is high above Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. Christ is superior to Moses in his work. In verses 1 through 4, the work of creation Now, the Jews had an unhealthy reverence for angels. In chapters 1 and 2, they considered angels to be mediators between God and man, since they'd helped bring the law to Moses written on stones. And while that reverence was unhealthy that the the, uh, Jews had, they had an even more unhealthy reverence for 
Moses, since he was the one who rescued the nation of Israel out of 400 years of captivity and then led some 3 million people through the wilderness for 40 years as their leader, they had a reverence for him. Although as you read the historical account, it wasn't so much at the time, (laughs) but later on they had fond memories of him as the one who'd been given the law and led the children to the promised land, up to the promised land. You remember the story, he couldn't go in. And Pink goes on to say the history of Moses was remarkable from beginning to end. You guys remember Moses' story? What a picture of Jesus, huh? What a picture of Christ. Just as Christ, we remember, was there was an attempted murder upon his life by Herod, as Herod tried to kill all the males in the land of Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy there of the Messiah and his life. As Herod tried to kill the the Messiah by killing every male, uh, what is it, what was it, three years and younger, two years and younger? Thanks. Um, You know, so with Moses, you guys know the story, that Pharaoh tried to, you know, lower the number of Jews that were being born into uh, Egypt. And so he killed and had a mass slaughter of many of the Egyptian males and Moses miraculously escaped. And you guys know the story, we read it. But uh, Pink goes on to say that the hand of providence preserved Moses as a babe and the hand of God dug his grave at the finish. God was just present and active and working in Moses's life. And here the author says, as great as Moses was and as great as his story, it's just the shadow of the one to come. Jesus is better. Jesus is much more superior. He's better in his office, verse 1 tells us. Therefore, you guys finally ready to get into the word? Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So there's this office given to Jesus of apostle and high priest of our confession. But before that, we always want to look at that word therefore. Okay, We don't want to just buzz by that. And uh, you all know, you could teach it, that whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And it causes you to look back and understand the context of what's being spoken. In, in essence... The author is saying, in light of Jesus being better than the prophets, better than the angels, creating the angels, he's, he became a man that he might taste death and fill his palate with death so that we wouldn't have to, that he might be our high priest and, and, and the absolute essence of what that means, moving on to live and make intercession and come to our aid because of all of that, that was just a brief sum. Therefore, consider him. Spend some time considering him. Now we get a glimpse into who he's writing to here. He calls the readers holy brethren. Holy brethren. Something that we are here in Prineville. We are holy brethren at Calvary Chapel. We're part of the family of faith. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brethren because he paid that purchase price to bring us into the family, to adopt us. 
We're brothers and we're sisters. And, and the idea that we're being sanctified and made more and more holy, conformed to the image of Jesus as he brought us into his family. There's responsibility in a family and there's privileges in a family. And sometimes there's more privileges than there are responsibility. And sometimes there's more responsibility than there are privileges. Either way, it's family nonetheless. We're a family, and that is something that is so beautiful. And I'll just tell you, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times this summer I've just gotten in the car after some church time together, and I just told my wife, I love our church family. I love our church family. I love you guys, and I know you guys love each other. Isn't that wonderful? That we are a family, we've had people coming to our church and we've moved into this community. I just look at them and I say, I just want you to know, our church is a family and we love each other. We love being with each other. We love encouraging each other. We're a family. Thank God for how he's just making that a reality to us in our church. But um, he says that uh, not only are we holy brethren, we're partakers of the heavenly calling. And that's opposed to what the Jews had trusted in and looked forward to. What they had looked forward to was an earthly calling and a temporal calling. And of course, there are some heroes of the faith that they were looking further on. We'll see that in Hebrews chapter 11. But for the most part, they were looking at the temporal, what could be seen and what's on the earth. But here, these readers are reminded, you guys, you guys have a true and better calling. You're, you're part of a heavenly, eternal calling, and you share in that. In this family, whether we're young or old, rich or poor, fat or skinny, smart or daft, a new word that I learned this week. Not draft, daft, okay? And, you know, you bring a pagan in off the streets, and they see this conglomeration here or this mixture and they see us loving each other and weeping with each other and giving each other holy kisses and hugs and serving each other and just laying our lives down and they don't get it because the world says i love the ones that are like me that's who i want to be with that's who i want to hang with that's who i want to love that's who i want you know and that's not so with christ by the spirit he's working this family and this, you know, as we've all partaken of the heavenly calling. But he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus there in verse one, or consider Jesus, something that the book of Colossians regularly uh, exhorts us to. Considering Jesus. The word consider means behold Jesus. Discover Jesus. Fully observe, fix your thought, fix your heart on Jesus. It has the connotation of taking dead aim, taking dead aim and focusing. Don't let any other thoughts come into your mind. Think on Jesus, consider Jesus, not sometimes, not part of the day, not once a day, not in your devotion, but all the time, 24-7 consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, talking to a man on the phone. And I just said, man, your situation is, is so tough. It's so hard. And I don't even pretend that it's easy or that this is just some easy fix all answer. But what I can tell you, it's the same for every situation in our life. Consider Jesus, consider Jesus, look to his life, look to his death, 
Look to his life again in the resurrection. Look to the power that he supplies. Consider Jesus. Now, this is more than a passing, casual glance that we are so prone to and so quick to give Jesus. We'll give him a passing glance, right? We'll give him a quick Wednesday night, pop, then it's back to my world, you know? We'll give him a Sunday morning for an hour. We'll give him a a quick, you know, vaporous thought. No, it, it means to fix your heart. Fix your heart on the object and then let the object transform you. Fix your heart on the object and let the object transform you. It's what the Puritans called centering down on an issue. They would center down, not a weird, like, find your center. They would, but they would center down on the issue, whether family planning or, you know, gospel evangelization or whatever. Fix and, and, and just center down on it. Spend some time fixing thoughts on the subject. And it's the same thing that Jesus tells us. It's the same word. I think it's 10 times in the New Testament that this form of the word consider is used. Aren't you just excited by that? Okay, 10 times. Okay, I know, right? But listen, two of the times are found in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's when Jesus is is warning us against worrying. And it's when he says, look at the birds of the air For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. He's not saying, hey, become a, you know, a biologist later on, a a botanist. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I want you to like really look and consider those birds. Okay. And I want this illustration to transform you. Are you not of much more value than they? Don't worry. Later on, he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of thee. If he clothes the grass of the field like that, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And while he's there teaching the Sermon on the Mount, I've been to the Mount of Beatitudes, a beautiful place, always wildflowers that, you know, you you stick in your Bible and crush and bring home back to America with you. Always birds that you crush in your Bible and bring them home with you. (laughs) Doesn't make it on the plane. Believe me, I've tried. Um, Look at that bird. Consider these flowers. God cares much more about you. Don't worry. And there was transformation. As we are impressed with Jesus as the individual, as the God-man, as we consider him, we'll make better use of him. It's our failure at this point of considering Jesus that explains why we know so little about Jesus and why we love him so feebly and weakly at times and why we trust in him so imperfectly 
It's because we don't spend near enough time considering Jesus. We're on verse one still, it's true. Moving right along as we look at the one who is the apostle, which means he's the sent one, the delegate, the ambassador of the gospel. He's the high priest of our confession, which last week we, we read and we studied. It means that he is the bridge builder to God. That's what priest means, bridge builder. That's what Jesus has done. He's bridged the gap from our sinful depravity to our holy God. It's only been made available through the cross. He represents as our priest, God to man and man to God. As the apostle, he's close to me. And as my high priest, he's close to God. And in verse two, he was familiar to him who appointed him. As Moses also was faithful in all his house. So he's greater than Moses in his ministry. Exodus, we read that in 4016, Moses did all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. I'm thankful for Moses. I realize that the Jews, they borderline on idol worshiping towards Moses, but it's okay to still be thankful for these instruments, these tools that, God's, that God used that went before us. I'm thankful for the example that he set, doing all that the Lord commanded him and building the tabernacle. He did it exactly as God said. I'm not a perfectionist, so I could learn something from Moses in that. In Numbers 12, 7, God is defending Moses before his siblings, Aaron and Miriam, uh, and, and he says, hey, other prophets, you know, I might show up to them in a dream or in a vision. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Man, what a, what a word for an, a reference, you know, <laughs> that, that the Lord gives. He's faithful in all my house. That's where we get the text today, that Moses is faithful in all of his house. But we want to contrast this faithful servant with Jesus. And as we do that, maybe we'll just read on a little bit. Verse three, let's read it. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over all his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So some contrasting here that we have between Moses and Jesus. Now, Moses was faithful temporarily, okay? Uh, but then that faithful time ended. He no longer had a, a ministry there. Uh, but Jesus is faithful eternally. His ministry still goes on as he ever lives to act as our high priest. Moses was a faithful messenger, it's true. But Jesus was actually the message, all right? And you see that all throughout the New Testament that, that Moses spoke of Jesus. In fact, when the disciples were rounding each other up to come and meet Jesus, they said, come and meet the one who Moses and the prophets speak about. So Moses, great. Jesus, better. <laughs> All right? Uh, as the message. Moses was a house. 
Jesus is the builder of that house. Moses was a faithful servant in that house. Jesus was actually the owner of that house. Moses loved God. Great. But Jesus is God. And not to wear out A.W. Pink, but he is a new commentary that I got, and I've thoroughly enjoyed him today. He wrote just it, it, so well, the Holy Spirit in this third section of Hebrews calls upon us to consider one who so far excelled him as the heavens are above the earth. First, Christ was the immeasurable superior to Moses in his own person. Moses was a man of God. Christ was God himself. Moses was the fallen descendant of Adam, conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Christ was sinless, impeccable, holy. Again, Christ was the immeasurable, uh, let's see. Again, Christ through whom God spoke, Christ was himself the truth, revealing perfectly the whole mind, will, and heart of God Moses executed priestly functions, but Christ is the great high priest. Moses was king in Jeshurun, Deuteronomy 33 says. Christ is king of kings. To mention only one other comparison, Christ was the immeasurable superior of Moses in his work. Moses delivered Israel from Egypt. Christ delivers his people from the everlasting burnings. Moses built an earthly tabernacle. Christ is now preparing a place for us on high. Moses led Israel across the wilderness, but not into Canaan itself. Christ will actually bring many sons unto glory. May the Holy Spirit impress our hearts more and more with the exalted dignity and unique excellency of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Not a passing glance tonight. Not a passing glance at Jesus. May the Holy Spirit expressly put upon our heart the deity of Jesus, the dignity of Jesus. He's faithful to him who appointed him, we read. Good, good, good Moses. That's great Moses. He, he was an ambassador in a while, kind of an apostle. But Jesus more so. Not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. And he would declare that all the time from his youth. Remember when he was like 12 years old and he ran away from home and he, you know, they found him uh, in the temple. He didn't really run away from home, but you know what I mean, right? And what did he say to his parents when they finally found him? They said as a, he said as a boy, I must be about my father's business. He was being a faithful servant or he was being faithful he was being a servant but he was Moses faithful Jesus more faithful even from his youth in the midst of his ministry he would say I must work the works of him that sent me at the finish of his life he says not as I will but let your will be done we studied this in first Corinthians this last week in chapter four that we as ministers are to be considered as Hyperetes or who, uh, see, who, sorry. It's been a whole three days. I forgot what I taught on. Hooperetes, which means under rower. So ministers of the Lord are to be like galley slaves, just not even seen, just providing power and force and making that ship move, serving the Lord in obscurity. All right. Or, or as stewards, as those that were committed to a task, uh, administration over a large estate, perhaps. 
And then Paul would go on to say, it's required of a steward that one be found faithful. And we jumped ahead to Hebrews chapter 3, where we saw that Jesus was a faithful steward. Faithful in his father's house. Verse 3 tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So Moses, the house, Jesus, the builder of the house. And, you know, it's like going to a street of dreams uh, in Portland. You know, they have these streets of dreams with all the highest houses and the techiest houses and just these wonderful works of craftsmanship. And, and, you know, you go into these things and you're just, you begin to, you know, exalt the house. Oh, this house. Oh, this house. Oh, this house. And, you know, the contractor's in the back kind of finishing something up. And he's like, hey, now hold on a second. Don't forget who built this thing, right? It it, it was my skill. It was what I did. So why are you glorying in the house? The the same argument is used here. We don't want to glory in the house. We want to glory in the one who built it. You know, that Jesus in Colossians chapter one, we read this a few weeks ago, he created all things. He created all things. But we have a tendency to give honor to the created thing rather than the creator. Romans 1 tells us that, right? In Romans 1.22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And so that's kind of what these Messianic Jews had done, and, or the Jews themselves, they'd take the glory of the incorruptible God, and then they focused on Moses instead. Corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart. They dishonored their bodies among themselves, and exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We have that tendency in our fallen nature to, to go back and to worship created things, like Moses, like angels, rather than the creator. I remember being at a youth camp when I was in high school and one of the counselors, she was listening to this passage and she goes, isn't it interesting that something that we Americans idolize, like cars, that we've kind of gone, you know, as the years go on, you know, we started out as like a Thunderbird, you know, and then it went to Mustang. And then, you know, now we're at Dodge Viper at the time, you know, it was like, yay, birds. Oh, yay, horses. Oh my gosh, let's worship this thing now that crawls on the ground. And that, no one's getting that? Okay, that's okay. Dodge Vipers are so 1999, I think, I don't know. Verse four says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. I had to chuckle this morning when I was reading this verse uh, because, you know, my kids are all about, you know, they just love to talk about God as we walk on the path and they love to talk about curation. You know, let's talk about curation um, is how they put it. And, uh, And they'll be like, hey, dad, did God curate the pickup truck? Uh, did God create the house, you know? And we're like, well, no, man made the house, but God made the man, you know? And this verse kind of goes, I was like, we got to get the, we got to send this to Russell, you know? Russell, every house is built by someone, but he who created all things is God. He's the builder of it all. And verse five says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. Such a faithful servant Moses was. When times got hard, he hung in there. 
He was a servant in his house. And in his ministry, he was a picture of the one to come, Jesus Christ. His ministry was for a testimony of those things that would be spoken afterward. You know, the Old Testament is the promise. And Moses would write and prophesy about the promise. But the New Testament, we read of the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. And, and I hope by this point, and if you've come to this church long, your mind kind of, it just goes to like the end of the book of Luke. After Jesus rose from the dead and he met the two on the way to Emmaus. Does anybody know that? story and and, you know they were all concerned and worried because Jesus had died and that was the commotion going on and they were sad and and what did Jesus say you know you guys are so slow of heart to hear what the prophets prophesied of he says for this reason the Christ had to come and he had to suffer and he had to die and then it says what did he do with those two on the road to Emmaus he opened up the scriptures and from Moses through the prophets taught them all things concerning himself. And our minds should just go there. You know, that those two different radical Bible studies that Jesus had at the end of Luke, where he taught the two on the road to Emmaus. And then he he appeared with the other 11 disciples and, and he taught those guys um, this incredible Bible study of all that was written by Moses and the prophets describing the promise, the promise that Jesus fulfilled. In fact, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. In that same chapter of Deuteronomy 18, the Lord said, what they've spoken is good. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. It's a prophecy of Jesus. It's a prophecy of the, the true and better Moses, the true and better prophet. So many aspects of Moses' life, a picture of Jesus. Yet what the author does not point out in Moses' life here in the book of Hebrews, and he doesn't really do that um, in any of his examples, like in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, he doesn't get into the dirt of these individuals' lives. Did Moses ever mess up? Did Moses ever sin? Did Moses ever fail? Yeah, he did. But you don't read of that in the book of Hebrews. The writer is, is very gracious in the way he, uh, and I suppose it's the Holy Spirit, right? It's the gracious one in the way he relives history and all of these accounts. Because the unfaithfulness of Moses isn't spoken in that he wasn't able to get into the promised land after that second strike of the rock where he misrepresented God to the people. But we know from that that Jesus is a better representative than Moses. He never misrepresented God. In verse six, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So Moses, a great faithful in the house, but Jesus is the son of the house. It's his house. And we get to be part of that house, as 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, that we're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in us. We get to be part of that. 
But there's an there's a clause here. There's a two-letter word that's so important. Does anybody know what it is, this two-letter word? If. It's the word if. Yes, we get to be part of this house. We are this house. If. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. You could jump down real quick to verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 3. We've been partakers of Christ. Woohoo! If, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It's this idea of continuing on with Jesus for how long? Till the end. Till the end. Matthew, in chapter 10, verse 22 Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. What's the test of a genuine follower of Jesus? How do we know if someone is a genuine follower of Jesus? If they continue till the end. We want to say what the Bible says and some tough subjects that we come across in the book of Hebrews. And I don't want to switch things or or morph the Bible so that we're all comfortable as we read it. There are a lot of warnings in the book of Hebrews about drifting away, about falling short, a warning that we've had tonight. And it's such a good warning for us tonight. It's for you. And how do I know it's for you? Because it's for me. We need to hear this as we read the book of Hebrews. What we're going to read in a little bit that the Holy Spirit currently warns us. I think it's verse 7. The Holy Spirit, the language is that he is warning us now against falling away or drifting away or neglecting so great a salvation or falling short. The test of a genuine follower of Jesus is not giftedness. It's not exuberance. It's not dramatic displays. It's continuing. It's abiding in Christ. That's how we know we're on track. If we're continuing on in the things that we've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom we've learned them, Paul tells Timothy. One man wrote, the question here is not one of the retention of salvation based upon persistence of faith, but of the possession of salvation evidenced by a continuation of faith. Has there been evidence in your life of a continuing in the faith that is proof of your possession of salvation? We can't say at a person's funeral who since 1976 has shown zero fruit of abiding with Christ, We cannot say with confidence, praise God, they're in the presence of the Lord in paradise right now and we'll see them again one day. We can't say that. And the book of Hebrews tells us we can't say that. Those that aren't abiding, Jesus says, are cast into the fire. Those who possess salvation will have a continuation of that to the end. The Holy Spirit will work in them, a process called sanctification. 
The ground of our salvation is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And the evidence of our salvation is that we continue on along in the journey of faith. We are his house. We are partakers of hope. And that is evidenced in our life, in my life or in your life, by continuing. And John tells us in a couple different places in the epistle of 1 John that there was a group of people that went out from us, he says, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They didn't continue. And he's not speaking of, well, they didn't want to stay in our fellowship of denominations. And, you know, they went and became a Baptist or something. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking, and you know, you know, first John, of people that would go off and follow these antichrists, the Gnostics, the Jehovah's Witnesses of the day. They became false prophets and false teachers. He says later on in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So there's wonderful assurance of salvation in 1 John chapter 5. Praise God, huh? Isn't that awesome? That you may know that you have eternal life. We can know that. But it's for those who continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, John tells us. I just recently started a book, although I've wavered in it a little bit, but, but uh, it, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. And it was written centuries ago by one of what we could call a church father, John Bunyan. John Bunyan spent almost his entire Christian life in prison for the faith. And, and man, John Piper has an incredible biography, not on him, but on his wife. If you go to desiringgod.org, go to the biographies section, you gotta listen to his biographies, they're great. But Bunyan's biography is amazing, his wife's biography. He wrote the book, Pilgrim's Progress. I read it when I was in the fifth grade. It was too much book for me, okay? Um, everyone else in the class did fine, not so much me. Um, I didn't learn good. Um, and in the story, Pilgrim is on his way to the... the ter- Help me, celestial city, right? He's on his way to the heavenly city. But on the way, they come to like the swamp or the sloth of desponding. And he would, on his journey, he would beckon men to come with him. He beckoned his son and his wife to go to heaven with him is the picture as a pilgrim. And his wife and his son wouldn't go with him. And they begged him to stay at home. And he covered up his ears and he said, no, I choose life. I choose life. And he left his family and made that great sacrifice for the kingdom. And as he's going on, he meets a lot of different men. He meets, meets men, and I, I'm blanking on their names, but uh, there, there's a guy that has a name similar to Wisdom of the World, right? Uh, and so there's that guy. There's a guy named Pliable, all right? And, and it's funny because everyone's name, it's just it's a picture of their character, right, and, and the actions that they're going to do. And, and as they went towards the journey, they come to this giant swamp of despond, and they're trudging through it and sinking, and they're getting exhausted, and the men that were on the journey with him that he would bring with him. They began to grow tired and weak and faint. They began to complain and what are we doing? And one by one, they began to go back and they would go back and they would go back. 
one man pliable. He was easily bent back. And he went back. Now, was he a Christian in the metaphor? No, because he didn't continue forward. Did he profess to be a Christian? Yes, much like a parable that we've learned much of in the last few weeks, the parable of the sower and the seed. There's seed that lands on the, on the road and the birds immediately take it away. There's seed that, that lands on really shallow soil on top of rocks. And we've seen this in real life and it begins to grow. But then it's scorched through whatever circumstance in life might cause it to be scorched. Like a swamp, you're trying to, to move through quicksand and they go back. Or they're planted in the thorns, Jesus says. And those are the cares of this world and the desire for riches. And that chokes the seed out. And then there's the seed that lands on good soil that produces fruit exponentially. You get into what's been called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And we're going to get into it a lot in this book. And I've told people recently that every time I study it, my position changes. Except for the last few years, I've taught the book of Hebrews every year in uh, the school of ministry in Corvallis. And man, I just see the gospel as that the Holy Spirit will help those who are truly saints to continue on till the last day. And we'll look at it in depth when we get to chapter 6, when we get to chapter 10. There's encouragement in that for us, though. That we are saved if we continue. Encouragement and warning. And we see that again in verse 14 tonight. Verse 17, or verse 7, we have this warning again of a danger of a hard heart. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this is where I was speaking earlier, that it's a present tense, the Holy Spirit is saying from the psalm, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways. We have a second warning given to us in this chapter. It's a warning concerning doubting. Doubting and a hardness of heart and unbelief. This was a generation spoken of in the Psalm, the, the Israelites who saw the Lord's mighty hand for 40 years. And we've, we've read the account this year as a church. You know the miracles and the deliverances and the victory and the sustenance and the nourishment and the companionship that God provided for the nation of Israel. But this generation who saw the Lord's mighty hand for 40 years, saw him bring them out of Egypt, miraculously through the Red Sea, out of Pharaoh's hand, through the wilderness where he miraculously provided water out of rocks, food out of the heavens. They ate angels' food, the scripture tells us. They saw them deliver him from whole armies and battles. And yet they had an error in their life. The error, this generation constantly doubted God, complained against God, which led to rebellion against God to where they would worship other false gods, not trusting in Yahweh, not obeying Yahweh, 
They always go astray in their heart, God says in frustration. They didn't know his ways because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief. God was angry with them. And they did not enter the rest that God had prepared for them, but rather they almost all died wandering around in the wilderness. And so the key of these verses in verses seven and eight is today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Praise God, he's brought you here today and he's brought me here today to hear his voice afresh. And we're standing up against red seas in our life and we're standing up against a hungry season. We're standing up against a battle, a foe. And like the Israelites, we are faced with a choice to believe the Lord at his word, trust him at his word and witness him provide and deliver in an incredible radical way in through situations that seem they would never work out. Or you can complain and you can rebel and you can lean on your own understanding and it will end in death. Numbers chapter 20, verse 13, there's a place called the waters of Meribah. And it was named that, it was a place where the children of Israel contended with the Lord. There are time after time after time in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of uh, Leviticus, where the children of Israel wrestled with God. They wrangled with God. They wailed against God. They rebelled against God. And verse seven or verse 11 says, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Numbers 14, let's all flip back there. Numbers 14, verse 26. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. How's everybody doing? Wednesday night treating you okay? Use this flipping session as a chance to kind of stretch the neck out. <sighs> Yawn a little bit. <laughs> stretch, do some deep knee bends. It's all okay. Numbers 14, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? I've heard the complaints, which the children of Israel make against me say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land, which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land, which I've, which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land for 40 days, each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed and there they shall die. 
Now the men whom Moses spent, sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. And so we see the price that was paid for an evil heart of unbelief, rebelling against the living God. Verse 12 tells us that back in Hebrews chapter three, that we're to watch out or beware brethren, lest there be in every one of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You guys, this is for you tonight, okay? This is for you tonight. This is for me tonight. Then the Lord, by his grace and mercy, he just brings us in afresh and he says, hey, beware. Have me search your heart tonight to see if there's an evil heart of unbelief. Their sin of the Israelites was one of unbelief. There's different types of hard hearts mentioned in this chapter or different types of hearts. One is a hard heart. Speaking of calloused and impenetrable, insensitive to the Lord. Another heart is here, an evil heart of unbelief. Beware and check your heart to see if there's the beginnings of an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. John Owen said, let not others entertain better hopes of their condition hereafter while they follow their example for no unbeliever shall ever enter into the rest of God. If you do not believe in the son of God, you do not have life. That's the truth. If someone is living a life where they don't believe in the Son, and they might have gone forward at a Billy Graham crusade or raised their hand at a Greg Laurie event or came forward here on a Sunday morning, if they're not continuing on in a belief of the Son of God for the redemption of sins, there is no life. They've allowed an evil heart of unbelief to choke out their seed. And they didn't heed these warnings. And, and I pray to God that's never said of anyone in this room who went through this Hebrew series, they would always remember this warning, this beware. I love the NIV version where it says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it. Tonight's the night to see to it. Tonight's the night to beware. Tonight's the night to have the Holy Spirit search your heart to set off the alarm that we might repent. And instead of having an evil heart, verse 13 says, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Make no mistake, unbelief in God is not something to take lightly. Walking away from Christ, disbelief is something we should fear, be aware of, and warn each other against. We're to exhort one another daily against this. We see it creeping into each other's lives. We call each other out on it in love. Saving a soul from his error. Again, from Pilgrim's Progress, there's some factors given to us that John Bunyan writes, a guy that was purified through affliction, no doubt, where he writes of factors that indicate a coldness or unbelief and the hardening of heart. And I want to give you nine different factors here that we can have the Holy Spirit scan to see if they're in us. Bunyan writes, 
in a life that is beginning to wane in its commitment and grow cold in its interest, there will be a forgetfulness of God and a forgetfulness of the fact that we are one day going to meet him. So just Holy Spirit, search our hearts tonight. Are we growing cold? Do we have an evil heart of unbelief creeping in? The exhortations for us tonight, do we forget God during the day? And when the temptation comes or when the urge from the Lord comes, we forget God and we forget we'll stand before him one day and give an account of our life. Second thing Bunyan writes of is a gradual loss of private holiness, private prayer, the curbing of our lusts and sorrow for our sins, an onset of laziness. What's your private life like? Do you have a private life of reading the scriptures to meet with Jesus? Do you have a private prayer life? What's your entertainment that you watch in your secret place? Gradual loss of private holiness is a, is a, is a warning bell that goes off that we're growing cold towards the Lord, that we're growing hard and calloused. We avoid the company of lively Christians. That's an adjective that Bunyan used, lively Christians. We want to be around half-dead Christians, he writes. Lively Christians will appear fanatical, just wanting to read the Bible all the time, just wanting to pray all the time, just wanting to, you know, share the gospel and, you know, leave tracks at the table or witness to the waitress or, you know, just, this guy's a fanatic, I got to get away from And, you know, I'm more comfortable around my old high school buddies that I used to party with. Just shows that a coldness and a hardness is creeping in. Fourthly, a disinterest in public worship. Jesus himself said that he desires us to not be the ones to draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. That we would worship in spirit and in truth. Fifthly, a picking of faults in others. A picking of faults in others. We begin to manifest fault finding. And we begin to try to pick slivers out of other people's eyes. And we ourselves have these giant timbers in our own eyes. That's an example of a heart beginning to grow cold towards the Lord. And and going on from there is associating with the godless. Psalm 1 tells us, blessed is the man who sits not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the path of the sinful, sits in the seat of the scornful. I know I'm, I'm butchering that a little bit. Associating with the godless. Involved in fleshly lusts in secret. Playing with sin openly. Become more and more bold and brave and our hearts become harder and harder towards the Lord's convictions. And and we've seen this. We've seen this in our church. Just, it's okay now that I'm just openly doing this. I have no shame. I have no conviction. I can look you in the eye when I run into you on the street, you know, Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, stand there with my, in my adulterous affair at the supermarket and, you know, and just act like nothing's wrong at all shows that there's been a hardness of heart and you're in a dangerous place. Finally, revealing to all the sorry condition of our lives. Robert Murray McShane was a preacher who died at the age of 29. 
And he wrote, I have found the seed of every sin dwelling in my heart. And therefore the warning of verse 12, the second directive, guard your heart is a necessary warning. Examine your heart tonight. It's a necessary warning for us. J.B. Phillips writes his translation of verse 13. Help each other to stand firm in the faith every day while it is still called today and beware that none of you becomes deaf and blind to God through the delusive glamour of sin. For we continue to share in all that Christ has for us so long as we steadily maintain until the end the truth with which we began. Something that we see in Hebrews 3.13 that we'll also see later on in Hebrews chapter 10 is that we were not saved into isolationalism. We were not saved to just be independent and out there by ourselves. We were saved to be part of a community. And in the community of the body of Christ, we will exhort one another every day. We will disciple one another and discipline one another. It's the same thing. One another daily. So that we don't grow hard and callous by the deceitfulness of sin or the delusive glamour of sin. Welcome that into your life. Welcome that into your life. Be part of a core group where, where you know, it's just intimate fellowship with guys and gals that every week. You're just real with each other. You just share the struggles and you can hold each other accountable and you can, you can look at each other and go, man, I know you're backsliding. I know you're backsliding. Come back to the Lord today. He'll heal your backslidings, Jeremiah says. We need each other for that. We need to rescue each other is the idea here. At the men's retreat on the last night, we had a giant bonfire. And I was standing with two men there and I go, this is, I go, this happens at every retreat, every camp I've ever been to. The pastor stands up and he does this example where he separates out some coals from the fire and he spreads them around a little bit. And you begin to watch them grow cold and darken. And I go, guys, I'm bringing it up now because we need to stay together in the fire. We stay together in the fire and we will burn and be hot. But if you isolate yourself and get out of community, you're gonna get cold. You're gonna get cold. And we need to push each other together, rescuing each other so that we can stay hot. One man said, when it comes to sin's deceitful approaches, All of us have blind spots. Therefore, it helps to have others around us watching out for us. John Calvin said, unless our faith be now and then raised up, it will lie prostrate. Unless it is warmed, it will be frozen. Unless it is roused, it will grow torpid. I had to look up that word. means lazy or sluggish. We're here for each other to spur one another on towards love and towards good works and to exhort one another, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and not continue on. Sin is deceitful, it's attractive. Verse 14, for we've become partakers of Christ. We're we're just gonna speed uh, finish up tonight. We become partakers of Christ. And here's the if again. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast, to the end. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness. You know, we're told later on in the New Testament that today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. 
Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. If you've come in here and I look around and it's familiar faces, nobody's new. But in a sea of familiar faces, hearts grow hard. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, just confess a hardness of heart. Let the Lord come in and soften your heart by the Holy Spirit. Repent of the things that you've been allowing into your life, that you've let creep in, that have caused compromise. The end of a hard heart is death, both eternal, both in the temporary life and in the eternal life. Verse 16, for who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So next week, we'll start out with the first Corinthians passage, chapter 10, where it says that the Old Testament was written for our learning. It was written to warn us. And these final questions, they're so good because, you know, it says, who fell in the wilderness? Who is it that the Lord was angry with? It's those people that saw the miracles. It's those people that heard. It's the people that heard the thunders and the lightnings at the mountain. They saw the law. They saw the tablets. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They walked through the sea as though on dry land. But they rebelled. We like to think that in this story tonight, or in this example, that we would be Joshua and Caleb, two people. No, I would be there too, of course, and all of you. The odds are kind of stacked against us. Many of us would have rebelled and grumbled and whined and faltered in faith and died in the wilderness. Many of us. And so there's a warning. There's a warning, just like the, the cliffs on the Swiss Alps have. There's these signs. I've been there. No, I haven't. Just heard about it. That say, stay away from the edge. Danger. Fall to your death, you know? Those signs don't mean you're going to fall off. It means stay away from the edge. And that's what Paul's giving us. Stay away from the edge. If you sense tonight the Holy Spirit speaking to you, that there's become an evil heart of unbelief, then you can cry out tonight like the guy does in Mark chapter nine when Jesus comes on the scene, he's got a demon-possessed son, this man, and, and there's arguing going on because no one can cast the demons out of this guy. And Jesus comes on the scene and the, the father says, Lord, can you heal my son today? And Jesus says, well, if you believe I can do it, and the man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that can be the cry of our hearts tonight. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lest I fall among the long, long line of graves, Lenski puts it. Worship team, come on up. The long, long line of graves, the saddest in the world. They came out of the bondage of Egypt under faithful Moses, but they fell as corpses in the desert. If we could have Blaine maybe go back and bring the children on in to worship with us. We want to just close tonight. You can set your Bibles aside.
We want to close just responding to the Lord. Just allowing his sweet conviction to stir our hearts towards repentance and confess an evil heart of unbelief where that's creeping in. We're going to have the elders come forward and just pray and be there to pray for you. If you just sense that that's happening, maybe just Bunyan's words, those warnings of if your heart is growing cold. Lord, we would like to think that we'd be the ones who believed on you and sided with you. And the warning is there for us in Hebrews, just that we are prone to wander. As the hymn writer says, prone to wander, oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above, Lord. That's what we cry tonight. Keep us, Lord. Give us the strength by your Holy Spirit, God, that we might be faithful, that we might continue to the end. We're sobered tonight, God. I want to see these faces in eternity and I want these faces to see me, God. Lord, help us to remain steadfast. Help us to hold fast. Help us to continue. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.